month, there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And on those Bibles will be in the text on page 134. Page 134. So providentially for Mother's Day, we are in 1 Samuel 13, and we're going to talk about war. <clears throat> Last Sunday morning, uh, we left the people of God gathered in the ancient city known as Gilgal. There in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel, man down, man down, AJ, hook him up. There's going to be more men down in our text. In uh, 1 Samuel 12, Samuel called the nation of Israel to repent, and they did. And finally, if you'll remember, after a protracted sluggish start, King Saul finally took the throne, where he'd become a king like all the nations. If you're new with us this morning, the events we're going to talk about and study together are, are incredibly old. This text is at least 3,000 years old, recording events in a place incredibly different than where we live. Uh, we're not Israelites. We don't face Philistines, and we don't have a king named King Saul. What we do have is the same God who authored this text, ruling and reigning, and we still deal with problems today. And so may this passage encourage us, even though the circumstances are certainly different than what we face. But at the end of 1 Samuel 12, it seems for a few moments that there's a pause in the problems. Everything's right. The people have their king. They have turned back to God. There is relative peace. But as we turn from chapters 12 to 13, the problems begin anew. Follow along with me, if you would, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. When he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash. Turn to your neighbor and say Michmash. What a great word. And the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. It was customary in the official records of an ancient king to begin the announcement of their rule by either saying how old they were when they came to the throne or by saying how long they ruled. In this case, verse 1, if we went around and looked at each other's Bibles, we'd find that there is a variant, meaning there's a discrepancy in how the first verse is translated. Some of the manuscripts say Saul lived for one year. Some of them say he 
took the throne at 30 years old. I don't know which one it is. But either way, the dominant point in this passage is incredibly clear. The the noticeable issue is not the date in which Saul became king, but what he did when he became king. Saul's very first act as the king of Israel was to finally gather together an army to stand up against the Philistines. Now, you've never met a Philistine. As far as we know, there there aren't any. The Philistines were the greatest external threat to the people of God at this point in history. And Saul had been appointed king in large part in order to deal with this great external threat. It took him two whole years, but Saul finally gathered together an army to seek protection from the Philistines. Now also in this passage, you may have noticed a new character. Did anybody catch it? His name's Jonathan. Now the passage doesn't tell us this, but later on it does. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan will play a key role throughout the rest of the book. But here if you look again at verse 3, notice, fascinatingly, that it's Jonathan, not Saul, who leads a small group of soldiers to defeat a garrison of the Philistines. Saul sits back while his son goes to work. Now, even in the days before digital media, there were still press releases. And the press release is pretty interesting in verse 4. Notice who it says defeated the garrison of the Philistines. It says, Saul, the King Saul royal office, after the victory, declared that it was Saul, not Jonathan, who led the battle. Saul didn't lead, let alone participate in this fight of Gibeah. But when it happened and when there was victory, then he was sure to claim it for himself, even over his own son. The narrator is telling us here subtly, this is the king who's going to take, 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 take. The king who will use people for his own glory. Now, as news of this provocation of Israel spread, the Philistines naturally got angry, and they wanted retaliation. Jonathan had unknowingly caused the sleeping giant of the Philistines to be awakened. So let's see what happens. Look at me at verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm kidding. This is going to come up over and over and over. There's a lot of Michmash in this passage. To the east of Beth Haven, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, People hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Imagine seeing this in person. 
the Israelites are outnumbered, 10 to 1. Can you remember back when you were a child and you came across a hill of ants? If you're anything like me, what did you do? You kicked it. You stomped on it. And that wasn't such a good decision. Because while there's a few ants on top, if you kick the anthill, it's going to begin to overflow with ants. That's exactly what happened here. Jonathan had kicked the anthill of the Philistines. And they overflowed. They're everywhere. Notice in particular the phrase in verse 5 that they were like the troops and the sand on the seashore. This is almost certainly an, an echo back to the book of Genesis where Abraham had been promised by God that his descendants would become like the sand on the seashore, that they would be a blessing to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But here it's not the descendants of God given by Abraham, but rather it's the enemies of God assembling to wipe out the Israelites. And very much like we would have if it was us, as the ants assembled, the Israelites scattered. Perhaps they thought of things like this. Maybe there won't be a life-giving movement of God through the Israelites to reach every tribe, tongue, and nation. Maybe we won't be like the sand in the seashore. Maybe we'll be wiped out entirely. So massive and awe-aspiring was this gathering of the Philistines, all the people could do was try to hide. The passage is graphic. Verse 6 goes so far to say that they were crawling into tombs just to get away. I remember Saul pulled the troops and gathered them at Gilgal. This is the same city where back in chapter 12, Saul had been finally appointed king. He'd taken his throne and the people had repented. Just two years before, it seems, that they had reached the high hopes of life, good life, under the king. But now they're afraid they're not even going to survive. When was the last time you were so mortified all you wanted to do is pull the covers over your head, never to get out again. It wasn't because there were Philistines gathered, but friends, we are no stranger to fear. We can empathize with their sense that if God doesn't intervene in some miraculous way, we're not going to make it. Well, look at what Saul does in verse 8. He, this is Saul, waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Isn't that how life always works? 
And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. A little bit of explanation here would be helpful. Apparently, it was customary for the prophet Samuel to seek God's guidance and to share God's word before the launch of a major battle or any other significant decision. And so Samuel knew that he was to go find Saul and offer an offering to God and pray over the people and speak God's word to them that they might go out not in their own strength, but in God's. And Saul knew he was supposed to wait. And so every morning, those troops got up, and very likely, there was a ravine, a field, and on the other side of that field was, were the Philistines, of a number so great they couldn't be counted. And every morning, those Philistines were likely shouting across that field, taunting that tiny group of Israelites. And as the hours turned into days, more and more and more soldiers defected. And Saul became increasingly, understandably fearful as his tiny army got smaller and smaller. So in a moment of rashness, King Saul decided to take matters into his own hands. He went through the religious motions of the offering, asking God for the favor that only Samuel was supposed to ask for. And in so doing, Saul sought to appease both God and the soldiers going AWOL. It's so easy for a king to forget that he's also a subject. It's easy for a king to lose sight of the reality that his rule is only relative. Now let's see what Samuel says in response. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? This is so similar to what God said to Adam when he found him in the garden in Genesis 3. Adam, where are you? What God said after the first brother killed the other brother. What have you done? Where is your brother? What have you done? And Saul said, when, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at mismatch, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I have not sat the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. And I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people because you have not kept the commandment the Lord your God commanded you. Samuel rose and went to Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal of Gibeah of Benjamin. Now, Before we wrestle through trying to understand why 
Samuel's reaction was so strong. We need to remember what a faithful king was supposed to be like. At the end of the book of 2 Samuel, King David, so years and years after this event, would write of what the, the rule of a good king would provide, what he would be like. It says this in 2 Samuel 23, The Lord of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. David says, when when a person in authority rules justly, when a person in authority uses their influence for the good of people, when one leads with the recognition that God is the only one truly in charge, then that just authority causes people to flourish. Those under that kind of leader come to see that authority is actually a good gift from God. Because like the beams of sun that pierce through the darkness in the morning, like the rain that supplies the grass with the nourishment it needs so it can grow, good godly authority is a tremendous blessing to those who are under it. A leader who leads not for his own good, but for the good of those under him will be a joy to follow. That's what a king was supposed to do. That's what King Saul was supposed to do. One commentator I read this week put it this way, only one who is under the authority of God is fit to be over another. Friends, this story shows that Saul is not a king who would rule justly over men. Nor is he a king who would rule submissively under God. Samuel's question in verse 11 is piercing. What have you done? Now, it's easy to feel some sympathy for him, isn't it? I mean, literally he's watching as all of his men leave. But Saul took an authority not his own. And all he could do in response was articulate his fear and project blame upon Samuel for not showing up in the appointed time. Perhaps from a place of genuine belief, maybe he really thought, well, I can just do that thing Samuel is supposed to do and that will take care of it. But in so doing, this king showed himself to be insubordinate The king's responsibility was to function under the Word of God, never over and never parallel. But King Saul thought he could perform an outward religious action and that that would be good enough for God. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't merely look at our outward external actions. God knows the heart. And in the heart... If the heart is not committed to obeying God, then one cannot please God, even if the action is itself a good one. 
Yes, the circumstances were dire, but even more so when circumstances are dire, must our faith, must a king's faith, rest in God alone. You see, this king was supposed to rule under the word of God. Long before King Saul had ever been born, the Lord had spoken through Moses and told the people what they ought to do in finding a king and how that king ought to function in terms of his position in relationship to God. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, it'll be on the screens behind me, it says, when he, that's the king, when the king sits on his throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law. Now that's no small thing. Saying the king ought to sit down and copy by hand the Bible that was existing at the time. And then get it approved by the Levitical priest. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God had commanded that the king should literally keep a copy of of the Bible, checked by the priest with him at all times. We might say he was to lug it around him in his mercy. He was to read it, meditate on it, pray it, not let it depart from his presence. The king's authority, you see, is a derivative authority. If the king steps out from being under what God has said, then he has abdicated his leadership. He is not to be followed. When he steps out from under the word of God, then he is prone to the pride so common to leaders. Friend, this passage is specifically about the king in Israel. And yet the application and implications for us are many. If you're in any form of spiritual leadership, as a parent, as a husband, as a pastor, remember, the only authority you have is the authority given to you by God. And that authority is never to be exercised for your own ends. It is always to be a servant leadership that's under the Word of God. An authority that never lords it over, but always aims to love and lead in a way that reminds people of Jesus. An authority that doesn't exercise what only God can do. An authority that comes under what God has said. A leader who does what God forbids and then blames others is not going to be a leader who functions as a building block for a lasting dynasty. Israel got what they wanted in Saul, but this isn't who God wanted. 
And so Saul is told that he would lose the kingdom, meaning your son and your grandson and your great-grandson and your great-great-grandson will not be king. God says he'll choose another. He'll set his heart on somebody else. Now, the saddest part of this whole account we've just read is that Samuel just simply shares these words and then turns and leaves. He offers no sacrifice. He lifts up no prayer. He gives no guidance to the people. He gives no word from God other than a word of judgment. Friends, I hope you pray for your leaders. Because the way in which they lead has a tremendous impact upon you. Pray for your elders. Help guard us from pride. Count us as one of you and rebuke us when we sin. Because Samuel walked away without guiding and blessing the people. The only thing he said is that Saul's kingdom would come to an end. So now Samuel's gone, the people are fleeing, the Israelites are hiding in tombs and cisterns and caves, and the Philistines are still standing there, shouting in arrogant battle cries. How would the story end? In the few remaining moments we have, let's read a little bit of chapter 14. Look with me, if you would, at verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Abja, the son of Aitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Silo, wearing the ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes with which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side, the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinan. When people tell me the Bible's boring, I know they're not actually reading it. This is weird stuff. Essentially, what's being described here is a jagged, rocky mountain in which there were large crevasses on either side and one tiny, impassable peak in between. And the top of the peak in the Hebrew text describes it like teeth. So sharp you can't even, you couldn't even crawl over it. And yet that's exactly where Jonathan goes. He goes to try and spy out what's happening with the Philistines. Verse 5, the one crag rose in front of Michmesh and the other on the side in sun, in, on the south in front of Gibeah. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison 
of the uncircumcised. Let it be that the Lord, may it be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can enter the Lord from saving by many or by few. King Saul might not be a man of strong faith in God, but his son Jonathan, Jonathan certainly was. Jonathan, I love what he says in verse 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's true. Amen? For Jonathan, as he looked at the same thing his father looked at, he saw something remarkably different. He saw a victory that God could win. You see, Jonathan had the eyes of faith. He saw that God's power is limitless, that His glory is infinite. And this knowledge of God's power enabled him to live with a faith that compelled him to act. But notice that this faith wasn't rash. It wasn't brazen. It wasn't arrogant. He didn't take the position of his father over God's word and announce to God what God ought to do. Instead, he simply said, maybe God will intervene. Perhaps God will act on our behalf. Friends, that's real faith. A faith that doesn't declare to God what God must do. But a faith that knows God can do whatever He wants. Jonathan didn't presume a position of authority over or equal to God. And yet he did not doubt God's ability to do what God could do. He knew that God could give him victory. Now for time's sake, we wonderfully have another baptism this morning to uh, observe together. I would encourage you later today to read the rest of the chapter. Perhaps even get together with another church member. And read it and consider its meaning and how it may apply to your life in the coming week. But let me quickly summarize for you a couple of the high points. Jonathan's intent was apparently to crawl up on this seemingly impassable rock and see if there was a garrison of the Philistines close. And if so, perhaps... God would intervene. And that's exactly what happened. The Lord delivered some 20 soldiers into his hands. And then the other Philistines off in the distance saw as Jonathan and his armor bearer somehow killed 20 men on their own. And this startled them, awoke them into a fear such that they came to believe that more and more Israelites were going to pour out all over the place. And they began themselves to scatter in fear. The Lord miraculously gave Israel victory that day. Not because they deserved it. Not because their king led them into it. But because there was one man of faith. One person. But even in victory, this story ends incredibly tragically. It ends tragically because we learn that not only did Saul 
act foolishly with this sacrifice he offered. He also acted foolishly by making a vow saying that none of the soldiers were allowed to eat until he had his victory. Now, I've never gone into war with a club or a, a stick or with anything. But it seems rather obvious that you'd want your soldiers to be well fed. Saul, in his stupidity, had set up a situation in which his soldiers were weak. Jonathan unknowingly didn't have any idea that his father had made that vow, and so he himself ate. The result was that Saul went to kill him, his own son. And the soldiers intervened. Saul, in the span of one day, lost not only his dynasty, but all of his soldiers' followship because they turned on him in order to save Jonathan. It's a tragic tale. We learn from this passage that King Saul was not the king that God had for his people. And in the short term, we'll come to see in the coming weeks that King David was the king that God promised. But not even David, a man who indeed was a man of God's own choosing, not even David could be a king who would always rule justly. There needed to be another king. And if you know the story unfolding throughout the rest of the Bible, one day God himself would come. He would become a man. And this king would rule not from afar and not by acting unjustly, but by receiving upon himself the unjust penalty that you and I deserve. Jesus died on a cross, rose again in victory, that you and I might know the light of the morning, the strength and nourishment from the rain, that we might have everlasting life given to us by God. Friend, if you don't know this King, King Jesus, I want to encourage you to listen closely in the coming testimony as yet another person, in addition to Jordan, shares how they've come to know King Jesus, and then to ask somebody around you to tell you more. Because you too, if you will turn from sin and turn to Him, can know a King that will forever love and lead you under the Word of God. Let's pray. God, we pray You'd use this Word now to invite people to trust in Christ, to know a King who never fails. I pray in particular for those of us in the room who are already followers of Christ, who are in positions of authority. We pray if in any way we have abused that authority that you would forgive us, that you'd bring us to a place of seeing it is only as we remain under your word that we can ever rule in such a way that we bless those who are under us. Forgive us as we have failed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.